welcome to Family Office Sessions with Agris. I'm joined by Agris Head of UK, Jeremy Green, and Head of US, Kay Shah. Welcome to the second Family Office podcast. Kay, uh, I'd love to start with you, really, when we're talking about the differences in the landscapes in, in the US and in the UK. So the term family was coined in 1838 by the family of J.P. Morgan. It was you know, coined by the Rockefellers. It was popularised some decades on. It's very much considered the home of the family offices. What can you expect from the family office in New York? Um, and then Jeremy, we'd love to go to you to see how that might differ. Great. So the family office landscape in the US is definitely a lot more mature, I think, than family offices globally. They tend to be quite larger in size. So whilst you can get family offices that might have two to five employees, it's very common to see family offices that are much larger. And this is simply because it is a much more established and mature market. It's a much larger country, you know, mm-hmm. huge population, family office term, as you just said, was coined, you know, in the US. So there is just a lot of activity going on um, in, in the US. Amazing. You mentioned about employee sizes. We produced our benchmark report some years ago that said that in the UK you could have perhaps a, an average of five employees in the US, this can, this can go into the 20s. They may go smaller teams. What else does, does the UK have to offer a family office? Well, it's interesting that um, family offices are probably one of the only sectors where America has a history and we don't. <laughs> We've got Bank of England separated 300 years, 10 or 15 years ago. So <clears throat> financial um, financial establishment of the city goes back a long, long time, but family offices are comparatively new. And, and as Kate said, that our experience of family offices are... Uh, maybe five to seven employees typically. You might have a $2 billion family office with a total of 10 people, only two of those on the investment side. So I think there are differences. And uh, I think the in, in line with the different size of the office, the, the US family offices seem to be far more corporate um, and professionalized than the uh, UK family offices and even the European family offices. And in the 10 or 12 years we've been we've been dealing with those offices, we've seen that journey that they've taken from uh, perhaps my man and his dog, um, my mate from university who I really trust and, and uh, will look after me, to a proper professionalised process where you have you know, top level people from uh, the investment banks and other places where you, you really work and get in the expertise. And so I think the UK and Europe has been on a journey and perhaps trying to catch up with the US. You mentioned becoming more standardised and professionalised. And you may have seen the news today that in the UK we've officially got more opportunities than there are candidates. We've also perhaps candidate driven market in the family business, but now there are officially more opportunities than candidates. How are UK family offices becoming more attractive as well as standardised places to work? Well, when you say attractive, you're, you're looking at uh, a family offices trying to attract the best staff from other family offices, but also from the wider corporate world. So you have um, Private equity is a big asset class for family offices, so you're trying to attract private equity expertise. The problem you have is, certainly in the early days, compensation uh, wasn't something that was particularly uh, widely known about within family offices. And we've done a lot of work on reports generally to um, show what the standardised, what the market family office uh, compensation packages vary from, uh, both in the UK and the US. Uh, but they've also got to look at uh, what, how, how private equity people are being rewarded, how, how other people in asset management companies are being rewarded. You are trying to attract those to your family office 
private equity quite well often have carry in, in some of the deals. Now, family offices generally don't offer that, so you have to find another way of attracting them. Obviously, it's a different work-life balance, a different, um, uh, a different vibe, the expectations are different. The hours are slightly better, work-life balance is slightly better. Mm-hmm. Uh, hours are probably shorter, unless you are needed, in, in which case loyalty is probably um, a, a lot greater. So uh, there is as- there are aspects of, of work-life balance. But if you're trying to attract people, you have to work out uh, what is going to win the right candidates, and then what's going to keep them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something we may talk about a bit later, but the, 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 the offering the right sort of compensation to both attract and keep key staff is vital. Bear in mind that family offices don't have a recruitment uh, function. They don't mm-hmm. generally don't have HR. The Morgan Stanley and Citigroup and... Uh, and everybody else, they've got a huge uh, organisation of HR people looking to actively recruit people. If you recruit in a family office, it basically takes you from, from the work you really want to be doing, so you don't want to do it very often. Yeah, it's a really good point. You mentioned compensation and doing everything you can to not just attract but then retain the staff. Now, kind of going over to the US, okay, you know, our UK listeners and perhaps you generally might be quite surprised by the lack of employment rights that are in place for, for employees, and I think perhaps. Jeremy, you can touch base afterwards on how they might compare. But you know, how are family offices dealing with with talent? They need, you know, as you said, longevity, loyalty is absolutely critical. When there's no requirement to, to give notice, perhaps, or to really look after your staff and employ it from a law perspective, how are family offices coping? Definitely. So, you know, the employment in the US is definitely more at will, so it's easier to hire but harder to retain the talent. Obviously, COVID's shown all of us that people have had to kind of look at, you know, working arrangements and, you know, not working in the office, but definitely in the family office world, we've seen a lot of people wanting to come back to the office full time. But I am seeing that there are the family offices that are open to hybrid working, Mm -hmm. not so much, but potentially even fully remote candidates are definitely opening their candidate pool and being able to find those candidates which will be easier to retain Mm -hmm. because, you know, hybrid working is definitely a deal breaker for a lot of candidates. And so I am definitely finding this with recruiting in the US that candidates, you know, will inquire about positions and, you know, even if it is a full-time office role, they they will not be up for it because everybody does want that more of a work-life balance. And, you know, so I, I do think that, you know, some more thought might need to be put into it with some family offices that are really, you know, want people to be back in the office five mm-hmm. days a week. However, also seeing that that is coming more from like the kind of first gen kind of patriarch view that everybody has to be in the office because when I speak to family offices that are kind of the second gen that are maybe kind of, you know, looking to take over their father's portfolios mm-hmm. and all that, they are more open to attracting candidates that might be in a more kind of, you know, hybrid working situation and then just really making sure that they're offering the benefits um you know medical is obviously you know a a big factor in the Mm -hmm. u.s so the the companies that are offering at least maybe 85 percent to the the full kind of medical cover for individuals and their families a 401k and then obviously the big one that we always talk about is pto or in uk's we know it as annual leave Um, you know really the most common pto allowance in the US is two weeks, that's 10 days, plus all the um, public holidays that they get, or national mm-hmm. holidays, so that that's, that's a big thing, people do want more of a work-life balance, um, 
sorry, people do want more um, annual leave. Mm -hmm. And so the company's offering more flexibility in terms of, of taking time off are going to win the candidates, especially the ones coming from some of the larger institutions that are that want to move away from the investment banks, they want to move away from kind of 12 to 14 hour working days, they are looking for, for more of that um, flexibility. Yeah. Um, and then apart from the, um, the annual leave... No, Interesting what you said about the intergenerational difference because um, I, I would be probably in the older category and, and for me to embrace hybrid working, it was, it was something that I wasn't really used to. So it was, uh, and now I enjoy it, but it's something that was sort of uh, went against the grain and all my experience. So I, I, I get that the next generation are doing that. And in the UK, we have a similar issue where there are some family offices where they insist on as soon as COVID was over, they got people back in the office five days a week and still do. Uh, speaking to somebody else, moment where the family wants them in ideally four days a week. Uh, and yet I spoke to another person who was interestingly enough, family offices in the UK, the principal was in the US, he was out visiting the, the principal and he said it's great to have that face-to-face -face contact because there's nothing quite like it for exchanging ideas, catching up, you know, keeping that relationship and yet at the same time we agreed that hybrid working, when he's you know, perhaps working from home or working from the UK, when he shut himself off, he can get a project and get his teeth into that project without being disturbed. So in the UK we're having the same thing. You know, can I work from home three days a week? And if it's not, then people are tending to say uh, say no. If if there were no jobs, then maybe there'd have to be uh, more flexible. But since there are no fewer candidates, they're um, they're cracking the whip at the moment. The other thing I wanted to mention was about the unlimited PTO, which is like a big thing that's coming out in the US. We had one client who, you know, said the unlimited PTO was was a benefit to them, but then went on to say that they haven't taken a day off in two years. So mm -hmm. it's that whole reverse psychology of using that unlimited PTO. But then we've also got a client that actively encourages can, um, employees to make use of that unlimited PTO before they bought, bought it in. They actually had a 25-day allowance anyway, which is really high in the US mm -hmm. compared to, to most employers. So, yeah. And also it's interesting, family offices are, are different from the from the corporate world and the investment banking world. So one of our uh, um, candidates was speaking, uh, the family office, he was there at, uh, for, for like 10, 10, 11 years or so, and he, um, he was having his first child, or his wife was having his first child, but his principal insisted he take time off. He said, this is the most important bit of your life to date, so take some time off. And, that, and, you know, and he made sure he did that, and he made sure that he could attend activity plays and all the sports days and all that sort of stuff. And sometimes he was the only uh, only father there. So family offices, you know, one of the things I guess both attract, so yeah. we've experienced yeah. that in the UK, uh, is the family element. The relationship between employee and principal um, is different. I know in Japan, I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm not sure I'm right on this, but I believe there is the highest level of adult adoption in Japan because they get an employee who's good and been there a long time, they adopt him into the family. So it's, um, you know, which uh, again is another uh, move on from the, the culture of both the US and yeah, the UK. Exactly, it might be written down on paper in your contract, but as you build that relationship, hey, you can use the yacht for a week with your family yeah. or, you know, all these added benefits that you wouldn't get working with your partner. Yeah. So, I think generally it's that idea of, of going above and beyond. I mean, 
maybe touched upon the law in the US. You know, there is no requirement for a great deal of PTO. There is no requirement to put correct, or what we would just say is correct, perhaps in the UK, you know, legal documents in place. But family offices are doing it in order to retain staff and making them part of that family. So I think that's a really interesting point. Um, on general compensation terms, you know, something that is a pain point today in family as well, to perhaps we'll start with you, Jeremy, on this. What trends are you seeing in the States, you know, from a compensation perspective, post-pandemic, inflation, we've got so many macroeconomic factors at play. <laughs> How are family offices compensating their staff today and what are the trends are seeing? Um, they are learning that, I think, slowly sometimes, uh, that they have to, they, it's a competitive market, you know, that they compete in the world generally to build up their wealth. They now have to take that mindset into, okay, I'm employing for my family office. And the way you reward people uh, is crucial. The, I think we did a survey a while ago that 60% of your uh, costs of your family office are to rewarding staff. So that's a significant outlay. The cost of replacing staff, both in time and, and, uh, and money, that's something you don't want to have. You don't have the resources to do it. So you've got to get it right. So how do you do that? Uh, LTIPs we've looked at. Um, you, you have a family office set up for some reason. So the compensation that you offer will have to reflect the reasons for the family office. And that may be different. So you have a, a first-gen tech entrepreneur. He's had a liquidity event. He's got 400 million to invest. And he wants you to go out and get the highest return on that, shoot the lights up performance. So he, the CIO there is probably going to get a smaller salary, but a much bigger performance-related bonus. He's got skin in the game, so that's what's going to be exciting, that's going to motivate him to, to make the most of that performance. If you have sixth or seventh generation, which you probably get more of in the States, mm. uh, to be fair, then, then a lot of that's going to be about capital preservation and how do we pass this on to the next generation. So if you target the, the, uh, the, the guy in charge on, on return, he's going to risk the portfolio. If you say, look, we want to make sure that there's capital preservation, it's structured in such a way that we can pass on to the next generation, tax efficiently and everything else, and also perhaps that the next generation is sufficiently educated so that they don't um, do the typical thing and spend their, 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 their parents and grandparents hard-earned wealth. Then you have to reward him maybe a bigger base salary and um, a smaller bonus element on performance, but maybe you have some other parameters that uh, you can reward. So you've got to structure your, your, your reward so that you align the interests of your employees with those of the family, however they may look. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned long-term incentive plans. I recently spoke to managing director in Germany who had been offered to investing from quite early on in his role as managing director slash CIO, um, and generated enough personal wealth to start his own family office, where he now outsources the investments um, of his former principals through his own family office. And so it's something that not just benefit the family office, and the loyalty is still obviously yeah. playing, that relationship doesn't exist, but it's something that can very clearly benefit candidates if they're now becoming principals of their own. Is it something that you're seeing family office, uh, sorry, candidates in the US? Is it something that they're asking for? I mean, you mentioned Carrie, are they, is it something that candidates are actively asking for and applying for senior positions, um, long-term incentive plans, and also generally what compensation trends are you seeing in the US? It's a really interesting topic, this one, and it's hard to obviously know what everybody's doing because mm -hmm. a lot of these L-tips are really formed maybe after somebody's joined the family office and kind of built that relationship with the principal and the family members. Um, but I think, you know, L-tips generally have been around a bit longer in, in the US just simply because of, you know, the financial services kind of structure there. Mm -hmm. and. 
you know, just the establishment of, of the family offices. But yeah, I think, you know, the, the investment professionals definitely want to know what the options could be long term. And as they kind of go through the interview process, it's something that they discuss with with the principals or with, with the family members. So it's not something that typically the family officers already know when they come to hire for those positions. It's really something that, that comes and sometimes it really is, you know, start a role and build the relationships. And we've been somewhere for like maybe seven to 10 years. We have an established structure in place, but then maybe your family office is closing down and you're, you're looking for something else. It might be really hard to get something that's kind of going to match what you're currently on so I think also the the element of you're trying to so on the investment front because that's that's easy because uh, I've uh, got a great return on your investment so I, I've obviously mm-hmm. added that much value to your family office so I should be rewarded that's an easy equation to look at but so you want to attract the best candidates so you have to make sure you offer something which is really tangible and attractive to them at the same time a, a family a principal family office, they want to employ somebody that is, in their mind, working for them, on their behalf, loyalty to them, trying to support them. They don't necessarily want somebody is what's in it for me. Mm-hmm. And obviously everybody has to be rewarded for what they do, uh, but the, the attitude of the candidate has to be the right one, the right personal fit, the right cultural fit for the family office. And if they are pushing too much, and sometimes we see uh, candidates who are very entrepreneurial and they say, oh, I'm carrying this, I can bring this, I can do this. And you think, okay, that's great, but the principal will want you to do this. These other things you maybe bring as ideas, but if you're, you're throwing these at me right at the start, mm-hmm. you're probably missing the point of what this job entails. So, uh, yes, you, the family office has to look at how you reward these people properly to attract them and retain them, but also you've got to get the right sort of personal characteristics uh, on that, that perspective employee. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going into a completely different world now. See, we've got macroeconomic factors, as we mentioned, such as inflation. We've had Brexit. We've had Eastern European conflict. We've had a uh, pandemic, probably one of the most important things that <laughs> impacted the way we all work. How have all of these factors impacted the way family offices make their decisions today? And do you think that, especially from an investment perspective, perhaps, that External influences such as war and such as inflation does that have an impact on the way families manage their money? Well, it does, of course. It's interestingly enough, the um, uh, since the crash in two thousand and seven, generally it's been a, um, a bull market. It's a fifteen-year uh, bull run, um, which is interesting in itself. So I speak to a CIO, uh, and he's saying it's not been that hard to make money. Um, so. Then you have the crisis in Ukraine and, and uh, inflation going back to the 70s, like having threats of, of strike in the UK. And I'm, I'm old enough to remember, sadly, old enough to remember the, the 70s where you had a double-digit inflation, you had strikes, even under the Heath government, you had the three-day week, um, you had stagflation. So all these horrible things, and it looks like they might be around the corner for us, which is not great. But um, the uh, what, what we have, uh, Family offices are perhaps better positioned to cope with those in that they don't have a quarterly PL to worry about. They can look long term, they can uh, sit on uh, capital and not deploy it until they think it's the right time to do it. So they are um, uh, 
that's an advantage in, in that sense. Um, and that's one of the reasons they set up a family office. I don't have to trade. Deutsche Bank, UBS, all, all the custodial banks, they have a PLL to look after. So um, at the end of the course, how many trades have already been able to do very much, not very much market activity? Well, that doesn't matter to the family office. They're only going to trade when it makes sense to do so. So the um, uh, inflation and, and the Ukraine, I mean, these are things that um, uh, have had huge impact. We talked about the pandemic, the, the fact that um, it's meant that hybrid working has been very much uh, proven to be a, 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 a viable alternative. Um, back in the days in, in trading, you'd have to have a trading floor. Um, and to envisage that being sort of put out on a satellite basis is quite hard to imagine, but that's what had to be done. So people going home, setting their Bloomberg at home and, and managing that. Um, so now that's uh, the genie's out of the bottle a bit now. So uh, I think traditional family offices looking to get people um, to stay in, as we said before, um, if they want to get the right staff, they'll have to be more flexible. It's, it's not just about them. Um, on the uh, on the global scene, so the, the events happen, and they family offices go into generations, especially in the states where we're catching up. But so then they're not looking at this crisis here. They're, so uh, uh, ten years ago, I remember hearing a, a bit of news on the radio. Some it was a, a, a big shopping centre was being built up. This has been planned over sort of 10 years, getting panel permission and doing everything else, getting the investment lined up. And they're interviewing the, the, the guy because it just happened when the markets were crashing. And they're saying, are oh, you worried about it? I said, well, not really, because we're not here for the next two or three years, we're mm-hmm. the next 20, 25 years. That's very much the family office philosophy as well. So if things are going down now, ooh, let's, let's uh, sit on our, uh, keep our power dry for the moment. When we think it's the right time, mm-hmm. we'll get in the market and take it. Absolutely, and Kay, you have seen the same thing. I mean, all of these external influences must have some impact in the US as well, but also you've had a new, a new president, we've got a new presidential election. Um, and obviously, we hear, if we hear, I think, belief in the news, Biden is set to bring in a set of regulations that are being called kind of tax on the wealthy, billionaire tax. How does that alongside the fact that it just starts to impact the decisions that people make in the US as well? I think we definitely saw, uh, have seen in the last couple of years, a big movement of family offices within the US from state to state. So we've seen movement into like Texas, Florida, you know, Arizona, you know, states where maybe, you know, taxes are lower and, um, you know, the, the ability to kind of preserve your wealth and kind of create, create more wealth is just a bit easier than being in the likes of New York and California. So we've definitely seen that, um, and that's also, you know, basically created a lot of social mobility. Um, and obviously, the US is huge. So when, when I talk to a lot of families there, I talk about the kind of you know international expansion plans. Many of them, you know, don't even have the plans because they're like, well, there's enough in our own back garden. So you know, if somebody is kind of looking at an investment opportunity um, in another state, I mean, especially during COVID, there were no travel restrictions in the US, people can still really kind of travel around and, and, and go and, you know, look at opportunities and things like that. So I think the movement of, of families in, into other states is one thing. Um, but then recently we've also had the Roe Wade, uh, you know, decision. You know, who's to say that's going to make a decision on things? But I did have a candidate recently who had an offer for a role in Texas and then an offer for a role in, in another state where, you know, this ruling wouldn't 
have affected and she just made her decision based on the fact that she didn't want to come into Texas for the role because of what happened. So I don't know if we're going to maybe start to see a, um, you know, an impact that that's had. No, no, no. It just reminded me of the conversation I'd overheard myself about candidates taking roles or candidates being declined roles based on their COVID vaccination status. Mm-hmm. Do you see things, I think in the, in the UK specifically, we have perhaps a more, um, not sure what the word is, but we're, we're very much the politics of the door. Mm-hmm. And it's it's respectful, and as much as it is respectful in the US, obviously we've got freedom of speech mm-hmm. and we don't have in the UK. Does politics get brought into the family because perhaps more than you've seen in the US than it does in the UK? Actually, I want to ask you, have you had any clients that have required candidates to be fully vaccinated? And they were not being an issue. Not being an issue. Um, Vaccinated. Obviously, they've complied with the laws in terms of closing the office and mm. moving people out to, to working remotely. And then, as they're allowed to bring them back in, if, if that's what they insist upon, they insist upon it. But they haven't insisted on vaccination. I've seen issue. that in the US, and that's definitely a valid point. So, it was um, a role that we had, I want to say, um, around the December kind of period, and um, I'd sent some candidates forward and then what up was asked before kind of arranging interviews are these candidates vaccinated and you know that was a real kind of oh my god I've not had this question before but we're well like 18 months mm. into the pandemic so yeah definitely seeing that so no that Djokovic wasn't applying at that particular <laughs> exactly yeah. will not be a viewer so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. but we see it we see it even with from a Brexit perspective we see the difficulty in our hiring candidates from European countries who get filled up bronze in London before it perhaps was, was quite easy. Well, Brexit is interesting because there was a, a lot of trepidation before that decision was made that this was going to really uh, impact negatively on London particularly as a financial, the international financial centre and it's still, I think the GDPR is a fifth or sixth in the world now so we're still, still up there, still a gateway to Europe in terms of finance and deals and everything else mm-hmm. and lots of movement. But so in terms of candidate movement, yeah, that's 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 made the pool smaller mm-hmm. um, because you, you don't have that freedom movement you had before. But but what you're saying about Biden and everything else and, and, and politics, the uh, it's interesting because I would say both uh, the US and the UK are hugely attractive for families and family offices, whatever nationality mm-hmm. and culture yeah. they have, um, for a number of reasons. But they both have the same mm-hmm. in, in in terms of. Uh, I sort of uh, say slightly something cheap, uh, geopolitical stability with what's happening at the moment with the Conservative Party and uh, everything else, the fight over leadership and um, everything else. So, well, is that stable? Well, yeah, actually, compared with a lot of countries, it is. The, the recent um, impact of Trump's uh, regime and, and the uh, division that caused, yeah, and then obviously the capital riots were, were a pretty shocking uh, event, but by and large, those are politically stable countries where if you set up a family office, you're pretty confident, okay, taxes might change and jurisdictions will change and everything else, but by and large, you're pretty safe and your wealth is generally safe. Then. The other thing is, uh, you've got Broadway, we've got the West End, we've got fantastic restaurants, uh, we've got theatre, you know, you've got um, um, fashion and shopping and everything else. So if you are setting up a family office with your family, you know, those two uh, places have so much to offer that, uh, you know, so it's a no-brainer. But you're saying about setting up somewhere else, there is an interesting debate now whether, okay, we have an office here, let's have another office there as well. Mm. Let's, we're speaking to a family office at the moment, uh, which is 
sort of nascent at the moment. They're talking about where they set up in Europe, in London, and maybe we have somebody now in, in uh, the US to focus on uh, venture capital because that is the centre for it. And that I think is where we are beginning to see more of a global village uh, in uh, family offices as we have in other in other sectors. It's really interesting. We went to an event today in the UK, and one of the speakers there, um, I won't mention it because it was Jackson House Rules, but he was speaking about population and demographics trends and how if you look at the second world countries and the population, and then you look at the first world countries and the opportunities and economy, it, it doesn't match the output, it doesn't match the input. And so actually we need freedom of trade, we need global villages to put it in order to, to meet the next generation of employers with the employment opportunities or none of us will succeed. So that's a, a really interesting point. Um, and so we've discussed fashion and vaccination status, uh, alongside conversation about the fit, as, as, as we probably should. What do you think, hey, as someone that's, that is British, that has grown up in the UK, has worked recruitment in the UK, but also obviously leads aggregates in, in New York, I should say, um, what are the, the key takeaways? What are the key differences? How does the UK and the US differ from a from founder perspective? Um, so, anything really, the, the key differences, yeah. Okay, so one of the key differences, um, just in terms of the actual recruitment process, um, that I guess we've not mentioned up until now is like the notice period. So in the US, you know, with the employment being generally at will and notice periods generally tending to be like a week, two weeks, maybe at the maximum a month, really means that people can kind of move around and you know kind of leave one employer and, and go to the next i think that's that's been a real key difference like you can actually be very quicker to hire in the us which has its pros and cons um i do think the compensation numbers that we've seen definitely at agrius to are much higher in the us so but then when we're looking at the employment laws you know are they working harder mm -hmm. so does it actually warrant you know those those higher compensation figures um, and generally just the, the family office market in the US is it's just huge so you know we're working with single family offices but there's so many multi-family offices and service providers in the US you know the CPA firms that cater specifically just to ultra high net worth individuals and family offices um, and so there is a lot more of that in the US so definitely you know we get inquiries not just from single family offices but from other kind of structures too. Interesting, because I don't know what your perspective is, is on this, but uh, it, it, the experience I've had, and very brief speaking, mm. briefly speaking to American candidates and clients, is that you know, we had a, we had an event with a CEO from not on panel, the CEO from a, a single family office back two, and asked why why do you sell the family office, and, and she said for two reasons: one is privacy, uh, and the other is control. Mm -hmm. And out of those, it's really control, 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 control. But privacy is important, and to some people, they may be politically connected, they may be very public, public figures, so privacy is important. It seems to me, and it may be because of the, the maturity of the family office uh, uh, sector in the States, they are much more open to talk about their family offices, maybe because they're more corporate now, they are in the, in the public domain, so they don't have a little bit of secrecy. That in UK and Europe, uh, we have to observe, and we do anyway, but um, we have to observe absolute discretion in terms of um, keeping the privacy of the, uh, of the family we're dealing with. In the States, it seems less 
it's definitely because it's more established, more mature. There's there's thousands of, of family offices, you know, just across the, the US itself. And I often speak to um, candidates, clients alike, who have just finished attending one family office conference or event and they're going to another one the next day. There seem to be events and conferences happening mm. all the time, round tables, whether they're virtual or, or in person. And I do think, you know, there's a cultural difference in terms of um, just the conversations that I would have when I was recruiting in the UK compared to the US. Um, I feel like, you know, in the US, they, they love to talk. They love to kind of see what opportunity can be created. And so I think there is a bit more openness. There are definitely families that, that we've dealt with at Agri's that really do keep under the radar, the confidentiality and, and this discreet aspect is, is really key. But there are some family offices that are not, you know, um, it's okay, you can know who the principal is. Like, you know, we have a fully fledged website and all the information's mm. there. So I do think that, that there is more openness um, and willingness. And I think that is a mix of kind of the cultural aspect along with just the kind of maturity and mm -hmm. establishment mm. Of, of the family office world. Um, Interesting. Well, I think that's that's it for an answer, really. And just to summarise, I think that with more opportunities and candidates in the UK can definitely learn from the US family's landscape's ability to hire and hire amazing talent. But perhaps the US can learn from our ability to retain them, whether that's with more employment rights, whether that's with also incentive plans. Um, and on the reverse again, perhaps us in the UK can learn a lot more from the opportunistic and uh, open-mindedness that families um, bring to the table. Um, so thank you so much for joining us on what is our session of hopefully many. Um, stay tuned for our next podcast, which will be all about seeing what a multi-family offices and how the two come back together. Thanks. Nice.